Before I begin, uh, do we have air conditioning on? Is anybody hot? The, these lights are quite warm up here. If somebody would check that for me, I would appreciate it very much. What I need is more air blowing on me and get my cold deepened down into my chest, and that's, uh, that would help a lot. <clears throat> I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 13, and we'll continue with the message that I began last week. Uh, this is part number two of the subject, What Happens to the wicked. And I believe that this is a very important subject for us to talk about today and really one that we need to concern ourselves with quite often as we look into the Word of God because it is a much ignored subject. Uh, Few churches will actually say anything about this when you begin to talk about the destiny of the soul. Now, the Bible is very clear about this, that there are some people, some sinners would be a better way to put it, There are some sinners that are in the family of God. These are sinners whose hearts have been saved by the grace of God. They have been changed by him. They've been moved out of the kingdom of darkness of Satan and have come into the kingdom of light of Jesus Christ. And they know him personally as their Savior. But then there is a different group of sinners. They are not in the family of God. They haven't been changed by the Holy Spirit of God. They haven't believed in Christ. And the Bible actually calls them enemies of God. They are people that are estranged from God. And the Bible shows that they have a very different destiny from that first group of people that I just told you about. Now, most of the time when you go to churches, you will hear preaching that is weighted, and I might even say overweighted, towards that first group of people. So you you would never actually know that there is a difference in people. But Scripture says there is a difference, and God will make a separation of one from the other, that one group of people goes into the joy of the Lord, and there is another group that goes to the judgment of the lost. Now, our subject this morning is the second parable that Jesus spoke in Matthew chapter 13. And this is a parable about the growth of his kingdom. And... This is a period, as I've explained to you over and over again as we've gone through this, it's a period that was a mystery to the disciples. It was a mystery to the Jewish people in general. It was a mystery to Old Testament prophets because it wasn't clearly understood in the Old Testament. Now, the understanding of people when Jesus came, and especially of his disciples, was that when the Messiah came into this world, that with it immediately he would begin this great kingdom, that all of the enemies of God would be destroyed, that there would be a kingdom of perfect peace and righteousness, and there was no thought at all that there would be wicked people that would be allowed to exist in this kingdom. And so now that Jesus has come on the scene, and the disciples have believed in him as the Christ, and they wonder about this, how are there still all of these wicked people in the world? Why haven't all of the wicked people been destroyed? And this is the part they didn't understand. They didn't understand that for many, many years, even the time that we're living in right now, that there would be this form of the kingdom in which we call the, that we call the church age. It's, it's called the last days in the Bible. The time between Jesus left this earth in the ascension and the time that he returns for us in the second coming, that whole area of time is called the last days in which we're living. And in these last days... There are both wicked and the God's people, the wicked and the godly people that are living together in this world. 
Now, the disciples didn't understand that, and so they were interested in the question. The first thing on their mind, Jesus, if you are the Messiah, then what will happen to all of the wicked people? Now, we want to look at the parable again, and we'll have a brief overview and talk a little bit about what we talked about last week and then continue with our explanation. So if you'd stand with me once again as we read God's Word, Matthew chapter 13, and this parable Uh, starts at verse number 24. Another parable put he forth unto them. This is the second parable of the chapter. Another parable put he forth unto them. The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, thou didst, or didst thou not sow good seed in thy field? From whence hath it tares? And he said unto them, An enemy hath done this. The servants said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles, and burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Let us pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Help us to understand today, and Lord, a very important message that we all need to hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Jesus begins... The kingdom of heaven is like. He's going to make a comparison here. And when he talks about the kingdom of heaven, he is, of course, speaking of the same thing as the kingdom of God. And this, is, this points out to us that God is the ruler over all of his creation. And what Jesus does here is he compares the entire world to this huge field that is owned by God. And he compares... Uh, Jesus, he compares, uh, Jesus compares himself to a farmer that goes out and plants good seeds in his field. A farmer that prepares his field and gets all the good seeds and takes them out and begins to plant that field in order to have a healthy crop. But then as the wheat begins to grow up, the servants of this farmer begin to notice that something is terribly wrong. Another plant is now growing in this field, and and this plant that is growing is called tares. And this is a poisonous plant, a poisonous grass. And when it first starts to come up, it looks like wheat. You can't really tell the difference between the two. But as the two plants begin to mature and the heads start to form on the tares and on the wheat, the difference between them becomes very evident. Now, we, we think about how Jesus began this story, and in our way of thinking, we would say, who in the world would try to do something like this? And what we know about farming, we would never expect that a farmer would go out and sow corn in his field, let's say, that he would go out and sow corn, and then someone would come along at night, and they would just throw all kinds of different seeds into the field, all kinds of weeds and everything else that would grow there. And so we would think that the disciples would be very surprised at this, that here a a wheat field begins to grow, and suddenly, for no explanation at all, that there are bad seeds, bad plants that began to grow in that field. 
Well, it actually wasn't all that uncommon at that time because this was one of the ways that farmers would settle disputes. When they were angry at one another, what they would do is they would sneak in at night and they would throw bad seeds in a farmer's field. And and this was so commonplace that the Romans actually had laws against this. You could be punished for this if you put bad seeds into a farmer's field. So, but this is what happened. And the servants notice that there are two different types that are of seeds that are plants that are growing in the field. And so they come and they ask the farmer and they say, didn't we sow good seed in the field? Why is it that there are all of these tares growing? And the farmer replies to that. He says, well, an enemy has done this. And so the servant said, what, what should we do? What should we do about this? Do you want us to go out and pull up all the bad plants that are in the field? And the farmer says, no, we can't do that. The roots are entangled now. And so if we try to pull up the bad plants with the, uh, the good plants, then we'll come out with them. So we don't want to go out there and tear up all bad plants because these roots are all wrapped around one another. And you tear out a bad plant and you're going to tear out a good plant as well. So he said, what we will do, we'll wait until the harvest comes and then we'll separate these two plants and we'll take the good plants, we'll take the wheat and we'll put them in the barn. But then he says, we're going to take all the bad plants and we will burn them. Now this is a parable that explains growth in God's kingdom and what happens in this vast period of time in which we're living right now before Jesus comes again. Well, we go down to verses 36 through 43, and Jesus begins the explanation of what he means by these things. It says in verse 36, Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. And his disciples came unto him, saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said unto them, He that soweth the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom. And so here he begins to explain components of this parable. He says, the, he that soweth the good seed is the son of man. And this is the part that we looked at last week. Didn't have much time to go any further than this. But we talked about how the, the farmer represents the son of man, that he represents Jesus Christ, that he is the one who sows the, the, the good seeds in the field. And this represents Jesus who is the evangelist. Jesus, who is the one who gives the gospel to people. Jesus, who saves people through the preaching of the gospel. Now, here he uses this term, son of man, that refers to himself. And it's actually an Old Testament term. The term that refers to the Messiah, the one who is the long-expected heir, the great ruler of the kingdom who will come. This is the one. It's equivalent, actually, to God who sits on the throne in his kingdom. And Jesus says, this is who I am. I own this vast field, and I'm the one who comes, and I plant seeds in my field. And the good seeds that I plant are my people. These are my people that I put into the world. These are people that are in all nations. They're a very diversified group. They come from every nationality. They come from every race. And these people are here by God's selection. And God puts them here in order to do the work of the kingdom. And that's what you and I are in God's field. We're the ones that God has put here to do the work of his kingdom. Uh, God has an expectation from us. Uh, last week, maybe it was, or the week before, I ended up the sermon uh, during the time that we were singing, and I said, do you think that God has expectations for you? 
And this past week, there was someone who came into my office to counsel with me. And one of the last things that he said before he left my office, he said, I think God has expectations for me. And folks, God does have expectations for what you're going to do in his field. This time is not your own. This is a time of growth in God's kingdom. It's a time for you to dedicate yourself to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So God plants these seed in the field. These are God's people. This is God's family. And they are very different from this other group that's explained in the other parts of this parable. And we go to verses 38 and 39, and here Jesus tells us where the bad plants came from. Into verse 38, he says, The tares are the children of the wicked one, And then in verse 39, he says, the enemy that sowed them is the devil. So we talked about the evangelist, and next I want to talk to you about the enemy. Who is this enemy? Well, the enemy in the parable uh, represents the wicked one. This enemy is the devil. He's the one who's the adversary of God. Word of God calls him the devil, and that word is translated from diabolos, and that actually means the slanderer. In the book of Revelation, you find him mentioned many times there. And there you find him that, find that God calls him the, the, uh, the one who, who, is, who is a perverter, the one who sows bad seed, the one who spends his time trying to destroy God's kingdom. And he calls him in Revelation the old serpent. And that's a reference to the Garden of Eden. And that's when Satan became the serpent and he deceived Adam and Eve. He is called Satan because that word means the adversary. So he is the great enemy of God. Now, I don't want to tell you any fairy tales this morning, but I do want to tell you where Satan came from just very briefly. Satan was once an angel. Satan was once one of the most exalted angels of God. And he felt that he could be God. And in his pride, he lifted himself up and he tried to take the place of God. And so he ended up in rebellion and God was determined to crush that rebellion because nobody can be higher than God. And so since that time, Satan has spent all of his energy, all of his time trying to destroy God's kingdom. He does this all of the time. And so he's the one who goes out here, and as much as he can, he sows bad seed in God's field. He's trying to destroy God's crop. And Satan is even right here this morning trying to destroy the gospel as it goes out to people and tries to interfere with the hearing of it. Satan is always busy about this work. Now we notice, though, that Jesus also gives us an explanation of bad seeds. He says the tares are children of the wicked one. Remember last week that I told you that tares is that poisonous plant? It's the only poisonous grass that there is. You cannot eat this plant. And this is how Jesus compares the people of the world, wicked people of the world. He says the tares are the children of the wicked one. So we learned at first that God's people are children of the kingdom. And here we learn that Satan's people are the children of the world. Satan has been called the God of this world. And that's because he usurps the authority of God. And so, as he's telling us here, these people are not the children of God. They are not the good seed. They haven't been sown by the Son of Man. But these are children of the wicked one. That's the part that's left out of Moat's preaching. This is the part that you really don't hear very much about. 
But the Bible is very clear about this. And Jesus points it out to us in a parable. There are two types of people. And you're going to fit into one of these two types. Either you are a child of God or you're a child of Satan. Either you are in God's kingdom or you are in Satan's kingdom. And folks, there aren't any options. There is no middle ground between those two. You are in one or the other. But did you know that most people don't really understand that? Most people don't understand what I'm saying to you. And they can become very offended when you tell them that they're part of Satan's family. So I don't advise you to go up to somebody and say, Hey, buddy, you're one of Satan's kids. He's not going to like that very much. So I advise you to go up and very carefully explain this whole thing because I don't know of any of Satan's people that are carrying an identification card that says, I am a proud member of Satan's family. It's not likely that you're going to find that. Now, this year, we are having an election, and you'll hear about PACs, political action committees. These are groups of people that try to get their candidate elected. But what you won't hear about are SACs, and that's Satan's Action Committee. Because you're not going to find people out here carrying their signs for the devil. They're not saying, we need to get Satan on top. We, we need to make, make sure Satan controls the world. No, you won't see that. Satan's much too subtle for that kind of activity. And so what happens is that, that his followers are the last to admit they're actually following him. And his followers are often the very last to even know that they're following him. But this is the truth of it, that everyone who is without Christ is being controlled by Satan. You might think that you're doing your own thing. You might think that you control your own life. But if you think like that... Just turn the side of your ID card over, and there you'll see Satan's image stamped on the other side of it. If you think you do your own thing, you're fooling yourself because you are either controlled by the Holy Spirit of God and you submit yourself to him, and if you don't do that, then you are being controlled by the God of this world, and that is Satan himself. The Apostle Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom all we also had our conversation, that means our manner of life, the way that we lived, in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath even as others." Now there Paul is telling us that all of us were once in this condition. All of us at once followed Satan. All of us desired to fulfill the lust of our flesh and the desires of our mind. But then he gives us another definition for people who follow Satan in the last part of verse number 3. This is another definition, and that is Satan's people are children of wrath. Satan's people are children of wrath. What happens to the wicked? Well, we're moving towards the answer to that question. We have a field. That's the world. There are plants in this field. Some of the plants are good. Some of them are bad. There's a harvest that is coming, and some will be taken to the barn, and some will be taken to be burned. I don't want us to get ahead of ourselves, though. We need to look at this carefully. We need to recognize that there is a very definite division among people. Again, two types and only two types. You're classified in one or the other, child of God or child of the devil. The Bible's clear about that. So the disciples then are wondering about this. Now we do have the Messiah here. Uh, he is 
this is Jesus, this is the king, this is the son of man. So what happens to these wicked people? And they were mostly concerned, remember, about what happened back in chapter 12. Because there were people that had so thoroughly rejected Jesus that they said, he can't be God. He can't be working under the power of God. Look what he does. He must be working under the power of Satan. They would not admit that he was the one true God. So they made an excuse and they said, he is working under the power of Satan. And so what they actually did was they blasphemed the name of Christ. And so the disciples are standing back and they're looking at this and they're thinking, you are the son of God. You are the king of this great kingdom that's coming. You're the one that has all this power. We've seen you heal people. We've seen you raise people from the dead. We've seen all that you can do. Why are you standing by and letting these people blaspheme your name? Why don't you destroy them all? And don't you think the disciples would have liked to have done that? Well, they did, actually. Do you remember what James and John did? Uh, Jesus and the disciples were on their way to Samaria, and they stopped in there, and they asked the Samaritans to give them some food for their journey, and the Samaritans refused to help them. And so... James and John went to Jesus and said, Jesus, what we need to do is just destroy them all. Let's call down fire and destroy them all. And so they had a great solution to what to do with enemies. Jesus said, though, love your enemies. Love them. Be kind to them. Be good to them. The disciples said, we don't have any patience for that. Let's burn them all up. Let's do like Elijah. Let's call down fire from heaven and just burn them all up. But that is not Jesus' solution. He says what needs to happen is we've got to let the bad seeds grow up with the good because we're waiting for a harvest to come, and it's not our responsibility to get rid of bad people. So what is this time that we're living in? Well, it's actually the time of the entangling, the entangling of the good and the bad. Uh, Back to verse number 28, Jesus is explaining And the servants asked the farmer, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while you gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. So the world has been oversown with wicked people, and the enemy sowed them. And the actual meaning of that phrase is not just that he sows some bad seed. It means he oversows, or he abundantly sows. And that means there are wicked people everywhere. I mean, there are wicked people that are entangled in every area of our life. And I don't want you to get mad at me when I say this, but there are wicked people in your homes, and there are wicked people that you work with, and there are wicked people that are in your families, that are in your, they're in your workplace, they're in your school, you shop with them everywhere you go, and you say, well, they don't appear so wicked to me. They don't appear to be such bad people. Well, consider the classification that we have here. A person who does not believe in Jesus Christ has done the worst thing that a person could possibly do. They have rejected the Savior of the world, and they've said his blood on the cross, the fact that he died there, means nothing at all. And so anybody who turns their back on Christ is a wicked person. You can put them in your category. This is the one God puts them in. Don't get mad at me. It's just what the Word of God says. And he says, you can't uproot the wicked. He says, if you do, there's a danger of destroying good plants with the bad. Have you ever thought about why? Why does he say there's a danger of destroying good plants with the bad? Well, I'm going to say something to you that's going to surprise everybody in here. Christians don't always act like Christians. 
Did you know that? Christians don't always act like Christians. And here you came to church and you thought that every single day, Brian Baptist Church members act like Christians 24-7. They always act like Christians. So I don't worry about any of you. I don't, worry, I don't worry about any of you doing the wrong thing. As soon as you go home today, I know that you're going to go home and you're going to pick up your Bible and you're going to read 14 chapters in the New Testament. And I know that you're going to get on your knees and you're going to begin to pray for three or four hours. I don't worry about you. I don't worry that anybody in here is going to go out and sneak a, a, a drink of some liquor. And I know nobody in here is going to go to a sleazy chicken wing joint. There's nobody in here that would do that. I know nobody here is going to a nightclub and there are no dirty movies that you watch. That's because you never do what the children's, the devil's children do. You're not entangled with the world. You're just completely free of the world. You're not mixed up with them at all. And I'm Elvis Presley, thank you very much. That's what you're thinking of me. You're the craziest guy I ever heard. Well, you know better than that. Well, here's the point. If you start trying to root up the children of the devil then what are you going to do? You're going to pull out some good plants at the same time. Now, some of them are scrawny plants, and they're not growing very well, but we don't know which ones they are. God, God hasn't given us the ability to absolutely perfectly discern who is a child of God and who is not. Now, there's some things that we can tell by, but even then it's difficult. So what Jesus says, just hold on. Just wait a while. Just hold on, and I'm going to separate them later. Let me tell you something else a church can't do, and that is a church cannot force bad plants into a pot to make them do what we want them to do. And do you know churches have tried that? Down through history, they thought that they could do this. They thought, well, what we can do, we actually can get rid of bad plants, and we can judge who the bad plants are, and we can uproot them, and we can kill them. You know what that cost? In the Dark Ages, there were 50 million Baptist people that were killed because of persecution because the Roman Catholic Church thought that they had the right to pull up bad plants or who they thought was bad. And the terrible thing about that is that they still have the same ecclesiastical laws on their books. Now, God prevents it. we thank thankful that they're not able to do that today. But those, those, you just have to look at their, their laws, and you can see they're still there. They, they, they could permit torture or murder if governments would allow them to do it. You see, that, that's not really different than the Muslims do. You know, they say everybody's an infidel that doesn't believe in Allah and believe that Muhammad is his prophet, and so it's our job to kill infidels. And it's exactly the opposite of what Jesus says. You can't do that. You can't decide that. I've given you one business, he says. Preach the gospel. Give people the gospel of Jesus Christ. Bring them out of darkness into the light. Bring them into the kingdom of God. So we have one job to do, win them to Christ. And every person sitting in this room today who claims that you are a believer in Christ, you were once just like all of them. You were once like all of them. And thank God for this. He didn't uproot you and destroy you, but he gave you his gospel. He saved you by his mercy, and through his love, he drew you to him. And that's the only reason why you're here, and you stand redeemed before God. It's because of love of God and what he's done for us. So what Jesus then is teaching us here is that evil will exist alongside of righteousness all the way up to the very end. 
While we're preaching truth, there are a hundred churches to one that preach lies. While we're giving the gospel of Jesus Christ, churches are everywhere that are spreading a false gospel. And do you know that Satan has a very highly efficient distribution center? He has methods, a whole system. You know, the world, as we go on through time, we become more and more technologically advanced. We have TV, radio, internet, social networking of all different kinds. And all of those things could be used for the glory of God. But you yourself, you know how often those are used as the devil's farming implements. And what he does so much of the time with TV and radio and the internet and all your, your fun social networking sites, he sows bad seeds everywhere. And he has such opportunity to do it. Now one, one method, only one method God has given for us to fight all of that. And you say, well, we, we, need, a lot of, we need a lot of weapons for this. We need a lot of big guns for this to fight the devil. But he says you only need one thing. The gospel of Jesus Christ. That's more powerful than anything that you can put out there. That has the ability to, as he said, to divide the joints and the marrow, to, to split apart the, a person's being, so be it. I mean, he can do all that just through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But still the devil's out there sowing seeds at alarming rate. And God doesn't tell us that he's going to save everybody in the world, doesn't say, even say he's going to save the majority. I don't know if he will or if he won't. He's not pleased to tell us who, but he chooses whom he wants. He does his work where he wants, and all that we do is carry on his work, and we wait until he comes, and he'll make the separation. Now, the next thing that we look at that we find in the parable, the fourth thing, is the excision. The excision. This is the excision is the act of pulling up or out, uprooting or cutting off from existence. Verse 39 he said, the harvest is the end of the world. So Jesus is explaining the tares of the field. Um, it's a time, good plants and bad plants grow together, but then there's coming an excision. And the plants that the servants wanted to pull up at the wrong time, Jesus says there will be a right time. And the right time he has described for us as being the end of the world. The harvest that he speaks of is the time of reaping. And here, right in the parable, he says the harvest is the end of the world. Now it's a time of growth. Now wheat and tares grow together, but both are headed for the harvest. The crop does not grow on forever, and the world will not last forever. The world's going to end. God doesn't tell us when it's going to end. Jesus didn't tell the disciples when the kingdom would come. We don't know. We just know there's a harvest coming, and this separation of wheat and tares will take place. And that is more information that people just do not want to think about. Nobody wants to talk about the end of the world. You you do this. You, You go out to someone, and you say, you know something, what you need to do is you need to prepare for the end of the world. Prepare, because Christ is coming. And if you want to get razzed and make fun of, start talking about the end of the world. Some of that stuff is deserved because you're going to have some nutcases like last year who was a guy who was thoroughly convinced and brought billboards all over the country and said, Jesus is coming back on May 21st. That doesn't help anybody. That doesn't help Christians. That just causes us to be made fun of even more. And you know what's going to happen? We look like the people that are crying wolf all the time. And we have no opportunity to prepare people for the coming of the Lord. So we're not going to set any dates. 
Jesus didn't set any dates. But it doesn't change the fact that the world is not a perpetual motion machine. It is going to come to an end. And it will end in God's good timing. A harvest is coming and the plants that are growing together will be separated. The next thing he says to us, the angels are the reapers. You know, this is a fascinating thing about angels. You're usually thinking about angels. Well, that's little Cupid. It sits on your shoulder and says good things in your ear. Or somebody sitting on a cloud with a halo over their head and strumming a harp. That's an angel. All just good little things. Look at what he says here. Verse 39, the angels are the reapers. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world. The reapers are the angels. Now let's turn to Revelation chapter 14, if you would. In your Bible to Revelation 14. And here we have just a graphic description of what angels will do at the harvest. And keep your place in Matthew 13. We'll turn there in just a few minutes. But this is what Revelation says. And there are many different places that we could go. It's not the only place that we could go. But here it's so clear that we really don't want to miss this, that the angels are God's agents to bring about the judgment, this separation, the harvest. Revelation 14, verse 14, And I looked, and that's speaking of John, John the Apostle, And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man. Who is that? Son of Man? Who is it? Jesus, exactly right, that's Jesus. It says, having on his head a golden crown and in his hand hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time is come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. He that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, which had power over fire, and cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth, and gathered the vine of the earth, and gathered it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Now there we see Christ reaping and angels reaping, And that might be a little bit confusing, but what it actually means is that Christ gives the command to reap, and the angels reap through him. They begin the the harvest. And you notice also that he's talking here about grapes. But that doesn't really matter. Whether we're talking about wheat or tares or grapes doesn't really matter. It's the same point. God will send forth his angels as the divine agents, and they make the separation for the coming judgment. Now, we go back to parable to the parable of Matthew 13, verse number 40, as Jesus goes on with the explanation. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of the world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. This is the scary part for everybody that mocks the coming of the Lord. So many people say, you are crazy. Jesus is not coming back. But here's the frightening end of the tares. And they're only allowed to grow for so long, not forever, just for a time. Now, fifthly, then, is the execution. The execution. Several months ago, I took a few Sunday mornings and we 
talked about a subject that nobody likes to hear, the execution of unbelievers. And it's not a quick end either. When we think of executions, we think of something, well, it happens very quickly and it's over. Uh, you read in the paper about, well, I think the only place anymore they have executions, Texas and maybe Mississippi or a couple of other places. So if you, you know, stay out of there. But, they're, but they're, they kill people there for, for breaking the law and murdering people and so forth. And so what they do is they take a person and with a lethal injection, they give them that few minutes, it's all over. But God's method is not a quick end. In fact, it never ends. Do you know why? Because sin is committed against an eternal God. You can't pay for that in a finite period of time. Sin requires infinite punishment. And so God's method for doing that is hell, which is a burning fire, which is never quenched. And the Bible says the smoke of the torment goes up forever and ever. Now, it's not my purpose today to expound on the doctrine of hell. And I don't think I'm really going to spend any time answering questions about whether God is fair or unfair if he does this. Because I don't think it's our place to vindicate God. It's not our place to question the justice of one who is perfect justice. I don't have the ability to do that. I just know what the Bible says. It is a real fire, is a literal torment. It lasts forever, and the pain is more intense than anybody's ability to imagine. Jesus says weeping and wailing, gnashing of teeth. Now, there's something very important in this parable that, that you really need to get. All of it's important, of course, but how do we know that hell is real? Did you know that there's actually in this parable contained within it a way to know that hell is real? Notice the components of the parable. Every part of it has a corresponding explanation. Sower is the son of man. Good seeds, children of the kingdom. Tares, children of the wicked one. Enemy, the devil. Angels, reapers. Every part has a corresponding part except one part. Fire in the parable is fire in the explanation. The parable says, bind them in bundles and burn them. I don't have any doubt about what that means, do you? I mean, that's pretty clear. Uh, they're going to burn the bad plants. Burning is burning. And the explanation says the same thing. Burn them in the fire. So I can't dodge that like some people do. I can't say, well, hell is not real. That, that It's just using a symbol here that, that hell is separation from God. And hell is darkness. And that's all that it means. Well, it means both of those things. But it also means it is a fire because there is no symbolism here for fire. Jesus is plain in both sides of this. And my job here is to tell you what happens to the wicked. And Jesus wants to be clear about it. He wants you to know this. He has a parable to explain it. They wanted to know, when are the wicked going to get what they justly deserve for rejecting the gospel? What do they get? What do they get for turning their backs on God? What do they get for turning their backs on the one who promised them that they would justify them from their sins if they would just believe in him. What do they get? There's only one answer you can give to that. can't change the word of God. If you change it and you say, well, no, that's not true. Hell is not real. By what authority do you change it? Where do you get your authority? You make yourself God if you try to change it. I'm not ready to admit that you're God. I'm going to believe God before I believe you. 
So the execution will come at the end of the world. Tares are not growing to fall, go are not going to grow forever. And you say, well, it doesn't all fit exactly, does it? I mean, there's so many people that are wicked, and they die long before the end of the world. It doesn't really make any difference, though, because what Jesus is, is teaching and in other places we find that those people are also tares, and they are reserved until the coming judgment. And then they're going to be placed with the rest of the tares and burned in the fire. So it's our job to warn people about this. The harvest is coming. There are tares at home, tares at work, tares at school. It's not our job to execute them, not our job to tear them out. We're not the final judges of anybody. We can't condemn anyone. We're just to warn them with the gospel of Christ. And then for those I mentioned a moment ago who say, well, that's not fair. God shouldn't send anybody to hell. Nobody should have to go to hell. Do you know that I actually agree with you on that part? I do agree with you on that part. Nobody should have to go to hell. You know why? Because God has provided the perfect way to escape it. He's given you the way to escape it. And he says, it doesn't cost you anything. Don't have to do anything for it. Not a thing. He says, I paid all the costs myself. Took it all upon me. And that's what Jesus did. God surrendered and gave up his own son to die for our sins on the cross. And he says one thing, believe it. Nobody needs to die and go to hell. Just believe in Jesus. So the parable tells us what will happen and when it will happen to the wicked. And one more point that we need to make. The disciples said, declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. And Jesus added another word to this. I think that they were pretty much through then. That was the big point on their mind. That They're the ones that called it the parable of the tares. And they didn't have a lot to say about the good seeds. And so I think they were probably through. But Jesus wasn't through. He's not through talking about good seeds. And by the last part of verse number 30, the farmer says, Gather the wheat into my barn. And Jesus adds the explanation to that in verse number 43. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father, who hath ears to hear, let him hear. So we can't end without this. Don't want to leave you on a bad note. Let's leave you on a good one. Number six is the enlightening the enlightening, the righteous will shine as the sun. And you know the thing about this? We talked about the end of these good seed. There is never an end for the, or the, for the bad seed. There is never an end for the good seed. It never comes to an end. Instead, there is a great new beginning for the good seed because they're taken into the brightness of the sun of God's kingdom. They shine as lights for the, for the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're taken into God's barn. And that's just another symbol that we have in the parable. The barn means heaven. The barn means to be with Jesus Christ and God forever. So God is coming here to gather up his children. And we have to wait until that time is right. Right now we just grow up with the tares. Right now we just endure it. But I will tell you this. For every one of you that is a child of God and you are tired of wickedness, and you are tired of people making fun of the Savior, and you are tired of trying to live for Christ in this world, just know this. He is right now on his throne. It's, it's, he's not vacant. He's not absent. He is right now on that throne, and he is right now in control, just waiting till the time is right. And when the time is right, he will return to take his children home to be with him. So what do you do in the meantime? Did you know you can actually help? You can actually help in God's field. And what you do is that you shine as a light for Christ. 
that you guide other people to Christ. You know what happens when you do? There are fewer tares. There are fewer of them. You get rid of some tares that way, not killing them, converting them. You get rid of tares, and their life is better, and your life is better. So the final part of this, two types of people, wheat and tares, two plants in the field, and a division will be made. Two plants, two people, two destinies, and the question is, which are you? And you know the way to determine that? There is a way to determine it. Which are you? It's determined by what you believe. Simple as that. It's determined by what you believe, and then it is demonstrated by what you do because every person that is a believer in Jesus Christ turns out to be different from that tear. They're different from the tares. People can tell that you're a child of God by what you do. You have believed. What you do doesn't save you, but what you do proves that you are God's child. So either you believe and you are in God's kingdom, or you do not believe and you are not. And there are no other choices. One final thing Jesus says, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. And that is very simply just this, an invitation. It's an invitation to listen to what he says. This is a call to believe in Jesus Christ. And so I pray that the Holy Spirit will show you what you are. Are you a stalk of wheat or are you a poisonous tear? That's something you need to determine today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you've brought us together to look into your word and what great truths are expressed here. And and Jesus meant for us to understand this. And so we thank you, Lord, for what you've shown us today. And I pray, Lord, that if there is someone here who's not believed in you, and and there's only two categories. We've seen that in in the... scriptures today two categories either believers or unbelievers and there's a destiny for one or the other one's with eternal heaven with you and the other is eternal hell whether to suffer the fires of torment so lord i pray that you lay it on someone's heart to see that distinction so clearly that they would say i want to come to jesus now i want to believe in him now i want him to be my savior speak to people today lord in jesus name we pray Amen.